Good morning. I don't have my messy exegesis work page this morning. Um, however, I have it nice and neatly typed out in my handy-dandy uh, pages app on my iPad. So I uh, hope you are using the page we used last week. I hope that has in some way enriched your study of the Scriptures this week. Um, I use mine again in prepping this. And uh, it's just a reminder that uh, simple tools, um, simple tools can do great and mighty things. A screwdriver can make your life exceptionally simple and a little sheet of paper can make your study of the scriptures profound yet simple and so i hope that you've used that this week uh, we're going to follow that format a little bit today not as uh, explicitly as last week as we study through our passage today and i hope that you'll continue to learn to study go to the manual and uh, use the manual to uh, grow in the lord first john 5 5 to 12 so we're going to be today uh, we looked at 1 to 5 last week. It's going to be 5 to 12 today because 5 is a transition verse. And verse 6 doesn't make any sense unless you connect it to verse 5. So we're going to look at 5 through 12, okay? Um, just, Joseph, thanks, man, wherever you're sitting. I needed to hear that this morning. Uh, praise the Lord um, for the truths of Scripture that rule our emotions and uh, for the gospel. Awesome. I needed to hear that. Praise the Lord for that. I hope this morning, if you walked in today and there was condemnation... You know, sometimes we come, I don't know, um, this is totally not in my notes, but I'm convinced that the greatest challenges that sometimes hit families, um, Sunday morning, I don't know what it is, man, Sunday morning will blow up. You can get ready to go to work and go to school and life just ticks, man. When it comes to meet with the people of God, children lose their minds, cars blow up. Like, I don't get, and I'm convinced it's deeper than just coincidence. And so, if you walked in today feeling condemned or feeling like life was blowing up, I want you to know that uh, it's not. Uh, and I need to hear that as much as you do. And so, uh, I'm just going to pray and give thanks that today God rules our moments in His providence and that all things are working for our good. And then we're going to jump into the Word. Let's do it. Father, this morning I pray that if in any way uh, your people walked into this place feeling condemned, that the enemy was standing condemning them. As the Scripture says, he's the accuser of the brothers. That in any way he was accusing your people today. Me included. And uh, Father, I ask that you would drive away that evil work. And that the gospel truth, the reality of the good news of Jesus... And His death in our place for our sin to do the great exchange of taking my guilt and giving me His righteousness. So that I would be adopted as a son and treated as a son. Today would, would rule. And I pray, Father, that you would give peace to the hearts of your people. I ask that you would drive away the cloud of confusion in anything regarding you and your word. And that the simple yet profound and deep eternal truths of your word would blossom fresh in our souls today. And that we would taste you to be sweet and good. And, uh, and we would find our great rest in you today. Our Sabbath rest today in Jesus. And uh, we pray that this would be glorifying to you. And sweet to our taste in Jesus name. Amen. Alright, First John 5, 5-12. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water... And the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify the Spirit, and the water, and the blood. And these three agree. 
If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He has borne concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning His Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. We've been studying together now for 733 weeks. <laughs> Fellowship in 1 John. and For a long time, we're getting ready to wrap up 1 John. We, we started out in a very lengthy introduction where we did some topical looking at the idea of fellowship. And we, we define fellowship as life together under the Word. Life together under the Word. It's not more complicated than that. Um, um, fellowship is not a complicated issue. It is a reality. Fellowship is not something we create. Fellowship is, is not something that is manipulated by a structure. Fellowship is a reality birthed out of the Trinitarian nature of God. We don't make fellowship. You don't make fellowship happen. Fellowship is a, an eternal reality birthed out of the triune nature of God. Father is in fellowship with the Son and the Spirit. Spirit, Son, fellowship with the Father and each other. And, and, and that is the very basis of 1 John. We started 1 John 1, 1 to 4, and we dealt with that early on. The basis of fellowship is Trinity. It is the very nature and essence of God to be in fellowship. Therefore, those rescued from the rebellion and the Spirit placed in them are in fellowship with other Christians. You don't create it. This is why when you meet another Christian on a plane in another country, there's this instant divine thing that happens between you. And you're like, dude, you're a Christian. Yeah, I'm a Christian. How'd you know? I don't know. Just tell. Why? Because you're in fellowship. It's a reality. And when you get rescued from the rebellion and the Holy Spirit dwells in you, Spirit in you testifies with Spirit in someone else that you're children of God. And it just is. It's reality. And whatever happens in that moment on the plane or on the bus in another country, at the store is fellowship. You ever notice that? The sweetness of those moments? That's fellowship. That's it. It's not more complicated than that. That's it. And so when we get together on Sunday mornings or outside of here, wherever we gather, fellowship is happening. And you know how you kill it? Analyze it. Fellowship is to be enjoyed. It's to be enjoyed. And when we enjoy fellowship in the Spirit, with the Lord and with each other, just great gospel things happen. So we talked about Trinity as the nature of fellowship. Trinitarian. We talked about the nature of fellowship being radical life. Those in the new members class, that's fresh language for you right now. Those of you who've been here a while, you know that. It's communion with God. That commun that bursts community with each other. And that community somehow, some way, in God's good grace, begins to collide with culture. Because here's the deal, guys. When God rules your soul, you can't not collide with culture. If your existence is holed up, divorced from your culture, you haven't tasted salvation. Transformed people have to act. It's just what happens in transformed people. You can't, it will drive you crazy. You can't watch the news, you can't read the paper, you can't be aware of the social issues around you and just be, ah, oh, that's okay, somebody else will deal with it. You, you don't know Jesus. You you gotta act. It'll drive you insane because the transformed part of you goes, dude. 
I'm anticipating the kingdom, the restoration of the king coming. And this isn't it. What do I do? And so let me just say to you, and I've said this before like 733 weeks ago, be released. If there's, an, if there's a holy itch in you, go just do it. Just do it. Grab a brother and sister and do it together. Right? Because that's the nature of radical life. Communion with God. Community with each other. We will collide with culture somehow, some way. It just sort of happens. I didn't ask to be put on the board of Department of Family and Children's Services. I just did. I still can't remember how that happened. I was so help me God, I got a phone call. And somebody I knew who knew somebody else said, this guy might be okay. And so they put me through the ringer and brought me on to the county, in the county system. And I spend your tax dollars. So I don't know how that happened. I sit in a boardroom making county decisions for Department of Family and Children's Services with, with people who aren't Christians. And I get a chance to witness to the gospel. Sometimes it's hugely uncomfortable because I'm the only unregenerate one in the room. And I can't keep my mouth shut because I don't. I can't. I'm not supposed to. It's not proper. To keep my mouth shut. Jesus will get me. And so I don't care if they get me. But I, I don't want Jesus to get me. And so you will collide with culture. And sometimes I'm convinced collision with culture doesn't have to be manipulated. If you love God and are community with each other. Somehow. Some way. Gospel has to come out. And it's not more complicated than that. So help me. The symbol of fellowship is the Lord's Supper. We take the supper together. and It is our common meal. It's the symbol of our fellowship. The danger to fellowship is sin and rebellion. Sin kills fellowship. Sin toward each other. Sin toward ourselves. Because sin is never localized to the self. Sin is communal in nature because we're communal in nature. Um, the responsibility in fellowship is to humble oneself. Be quick to say, I'm sorry, even if you didn't do it. It's the way it is. We talked about fellowship and the role of evangelism. We talked about fellowship and apologetics. And so we've been dealing with fellowship and the role of fellowship in 1 John. And by way of introduction, remember, John has written to these Christians to encourage these struggling Christians. That's the tone of the letter. John calls them little children. He calls them beloved. And, and there is an encouraging tone in this letter. Just to quickly recap some of the things we said last week. These Christians needed encouragement due to the false teachers and their many followers who've abandoned them for another gospel, a false gospel. Paul says... If in Galatians, if I or an angel from heaven or anyone else should preach to you another gospel, let them be accursed. And there's been another gospel preached to these people, another teaching. And those false teachers and their followers have gone out and abandoned them. And so John writes to encourage these wrestling, faithful few. This teaching seemed to emphasize Jesus as a spiritual entity only denying the physical reality of Jesus and highlighting the false teacher or teachers and their followers' superior knowledge. So John lets them know Jesus has come in the flesh. He's come in the flesh and you have knowledge too. So he wants to encourage them. They have indwelling spirit. They have knowledge and Jesus has come in the flesh. Um, he wants to encourage them that they are not inferior to those who are deceived. You ever notice how super spiritual people 
make you feel less than? God, I hope I never come across that way. I really don't. And if I do, I am so sorry. I, I can't, I'm just sort of me. And I try to recount often where I come from so that you realize, dude, can anything good come out of Silver Creek? I don't know. I, I hope you know that it, it, it is a jar of clay. And so, you ever notice how that happens though sometimes? That you have a tendency to feel inferior. That was the case in, in, in this instance. And, and those remaining Christians, John wants them to know they're not inferior to those who are deceived. Rather, they have the Spirit of God dwelling in them. They have knowledge and they have knowledge of the truth. Listen, if you have a Bible, you have the knowledge of the truth in front of you. There's a doctorate waiting for you from Genesis to Revelation. Whether anybody recognizes it with letters in front of your name or after your name, you master the content of the manual, there's a doctorate waiting for you. And it's there for you. And you have indwelling counselor, Holy Spirit, chief teacher, ready to counsel you and guide you into the truth of Scripture. So when you hold on to the Gospel, you are not less than... You have the very essence of truth. He encourages them. Jesus has come in the flesh and this Jesus is the Son of God. He encourages and reminds them that Jesus has showed His love for them in His coming in the flesh and in His crucifixion. And that's key to our passage here in just a moment. He reminds them that true believers love one another as the Father loved them in Christ. So our love for each other is predicated on the Father's Love for us. We are to love one another the way Father loves us. He reminds them that the Lord's children don't habitually sin. But when they do, He reminds them to have forgiveness. To have an advocate with the Father. He reminds them that followers of Jesus have full confidence in the God who loves them. That our confidence is high in Him and He is working for our good. And He does take care of us. He reminds them that by trusting in the God-man, and that's key to our text today, by trusting in the God-man Jesus, the one who is all man and all God and will be so forever, Jesus, by trusting Him, we have eternal life. And He reminds us overarching that those who have eternal life in Jesus have joy in fellowship. That's how He ends chapter 1, verse 1 to 4, that our joy in fellowship, our joy may be complete and so that's the overarching picture of what john is saying to them in this book and all those things apply to us in fellowship so when we come to our text today what does the text say to us today i'm going to give you some quick summary statements with some verses that we've looked at today connected to try to get our arms around what john has said to them today in verse 5 and 6, what John has said here is he identifies the Son of God who causes us to overcome the world as none other than Jesus. So as we looked at last week, our overcomer, the way in which we overcome the world's system of lies, contrary to the gospel, the desires of the eyes, the desires of flesh, and pride and possessions, the way that is overcome, it is overcome in Jesus. He's the center, He's the ground, the foundation, and so therefore the overcoming of the desires of the eyes, the desires of flesh, and pride and possessions is through Christ and Christ alone. We take every thought captive to obey Jesus, to obey the truth of the overarching truth of the gospel. Second observation of what our text is saying today is in verse 7 and 8, that the Spirit, the water, and the blood testify to the identity of Jesus. This is huge. We'll hit this in just a few moments. We talk about what does that mean. The Spirit, the water, and the blood, these three testify to 
God's message in Christ. Verse 9, John's telling these Christians that God's testimony is greater than man's. It's so hard not to go ahead and just go off on that. Listen, when you're talking to somebody about Jesus, your story is irrelevant. Do not tell them what Jesus has done for you. Tell them who Jesus is. I can't save anybody. Neither can you. Listen, Romans 1.16 Do you really believe that the articulation of the God... Can you articulate the Gospel? Question number one. Two, do you believe that your articulation of that story can radically transform an unbeliever on the moment, in the spot, right there? Do you believe that? If you do, then tell them the story. Drop the G-bomb. It's powerful. Read your Bible and watch what happens all the time as the Gospel gets articulated. Paul doesn't recount his story often, does he? But boy, he sure does drop Jesus on people all the time. God's testimony in the Gospel is greater than ours. My testimony ultimately is irrelevant. I mean, you know, it's nice to hear. It encourages saints, doesn't it? We talk about what God's done in our lives. That helps, doesn't it? Because you recognize, God, the Lord really is at work. But that's not going to save a lost person. God's testimony is greater than ours. It's greater than man's. Verse 9. Verse 10, the first part of verse 10. Followers of Jesus have God's testimony in themselves. Those who believed in the Son of God who overcomes the world system, we have God's greater testimony in us. Second part of verse 10. Non-believers in their unbelief are in the position of accusing, accusing the Father of being a liar. Ooh, that's tough, huh? So those who remain in unbelief are an active accusation against God the Father that He's a liar. That's bad news, huh? Which means we need to be able to make sure we tell the good news. <laughs> this, this, this had a total thought. Try that one on for size next time you're talking with a non-Christian friend or in, in a position. Is you know you, you know you're making God out to be a liar. What? I don't think that's an evangelism strategy 101 in most places. I'm I, that's what the manual says. So I don't know. Maybe that might not hurt. You know. Verse 11, our testimony, our testimony is eternal life in Jesus. Our story ultimately is we have eternal life in Christ. That's our story. John identifies eternal life. We'll talk about that in just a moment. And finally, last observation here, verse 12. If we have Jesus, we have life. We've got eternal life. But if we don't have Jesus, we do not have life. If we have Jesus, we have life. If we don't have Jesus, we don't have life. So what does all that mean? What does all that mean? It's a great question. Well, let's take a look at that. Verse 5 and 6. Let's read them. He who... He who ooh, 
Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. What does all this mean? First observation, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. Listen, guys, it is absolutely essential that as Christians, we uphold the centrality of Jesus Christ. That sounds overly simplistic, I know. However, that is a missional challenge that will face each and every one of you as you engage your world. It becomes clear in our challenge to make sure that when we talk about what we believe, we just don't use generic language, but we use Bible language. We use the language of God's kingdom. John is clear in this book that what he is teaching isn't simply God language. It is Jesus language who identifies for us who God is. I harp on this a lot, and the reason I do is because your world, your culture is a super spiritual culture that says a lot verbally out of its mouth about God. You can watch any newscast, and you'll get a religious perspective, and you'll get religious experts from various world's religions, and they all talk about God as though they're talking about the same God. There's just one problem with that. Jesus. Jesus told Philip in John 14, Philip asked, show us the Father and that's enough for us. And he's like, dude, have I been with you so long and you don't get it? You've seen me, you've seen the Father. That, that kind of takes the Christian in those debates to a different level. And in order for him to even dialogue with them and them not shoot him, he has to just be generic and talk about God. And, and I want you to understand that from the inside of those discussions, they all truly believe that they all worship the same God and just manifested in different forms. And so therefore, that's the basis of their unity. Most of our governmental systems, even at county and city levels, hold to that. You just, just ask people. Just engage them and ask. And God language is acceptable. Jesus language is not. Dr. Tony Evans told a story one time. When we were in Texas in seminary and we were attending Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship. That was a blast, by the way. That was awesome. And so, uh, by the way, Dr. Evans preached over an hour every Sunday. And they worshiped for like an hour and a half. Like each service was three hours long. And you're like, dude, can we like keep going? That was fun. And so uh, Dr. Tony Evans said he was invited to the Dallas City Council uh, meeting to pray before the service, or before the service, before the meeting. And they told him that uh, he needed to just pray in the name of God and he didn't need to mention Jesus. Well, Dr. Evans, uh, I, love, I love the fact that he didn't tell them on the phone, I can't come then. He just goes. And Dr. Evans' prayer was along the lines of, Father, they've asked me to come and invoke your name upon their meeting today, but the Bible tells me that I can't come to you unless I come to you through Jesus. And so since they want to talk to you and want wisdom from you, I'm going to come to you in the name of Jesus today who died in their place for their sin. And he dropped the G-bomb in his prayer and prayed for them. And as Dr. Evans said, if you don't want Jesus, you don't want me. 
Jesus is the Son of God. And John wants them to remember that Jesus who's come in the flesh is the centerpiece of their fellowship. And we do not forget that. Second observation, verse 7 through 9. Fathers provided testimony to the identity of Jesus. Lest we get nervous about the identity of Jesus, the Father Himself has provided a testimony to the identity of Jesus. Read verse 6 along with verse 7, 8, and 9. This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not God. And, and it's okay to talk about God, by the way. Don't hear me say don't ever talk about God, okay? It's just when the Bible speaks of God, the Bible goes to great lengths to tell you who that God is, and His name is Jesus, okay? So just do that, alright? Be clear, alright? Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. These three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He is born concerning His Son. What's the testimony God's born concerning His Son? The Spirit, the water, and the blood. This greater testimony. The Father has provided testimony to the identity of Jesus. Water and blood. What the heck is that? What the heck is that? Most people agree, and I uh, agree with them. There are a few that are on the fringe, and I'm not even going to bring them up because it's just confusing. That this reference to water and blood is reference to Jesus' baptism and His crucifixion. At Jesus' baptism, the Gospel accounts witness to the Holy Spirit descending on the Son, empowering, giving witness to Jesus' testimony to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus' shedding of His blood in His death on the cross in the place of rebels to reconcile them back to the Father. The spilling of Jesus' blood is a reference to His death. And the Spirit given at Jesus' ascension, that John is clear in John 14, 15, and 16, whose ministry is to hold up, highlight, testify to, counsel toward Jesus. His ministry is to point to His work and ministry in the flesh and His death in our place for our sin. So Holy Spirit's ministry is to hold up the ministry of Jesus and His death. That's what Holy Spirit does. So Spirit witnesses to His ministry and His death. And this is God's testimony. What is God's testimony? Jesus. The life. The death. The burial. The resurrection. The identity of Jesus. There was an early false teacher, Serenthus that led to some teaching, Serenthinianism. Anyway, you can go look that up. Um, later in the first century, that would lead to later on in the second century, Gnosticism, that carried in it this idea that the spiritual things were good and physical things were bad. And since spiritual things are good and physical things are bad, then Jesus couldn't have been physical. He had to be all spiritual. So, 
the divine Christ came upon Jesus at His baptism and left Him at the crucifixion because God Himself can't die. That's the false teaching. John is seeking to counteract that by letting them know the ministry of the Spirit witnesses to the ministry of the Son and the death of the Son, which is why when you talk about Jesus, it is essential that you hold Jesus up, not just as God, but the God-man. Here's you an orthodox definition. Jesus is all man and all God, and He will be so forever. That's Wayne Grudem, chapter on Jesus. Go check it out. It's a great book. Need it for your reference library, okay? Jesus isn't just a spirit, and He isn't just a man. If He's a man, He's just a prophet. If He's just deity and spirit, He has no identity with creatures that are in the flesh. The Bible affirms for us that He is the God-man. He came in the Spirit to do His ministry, and the God-man died on the cross in my place for my sin. And He was buried, and He has authority to take His life up again, the Scriptures tell us, to provide salvation for all who will believe. And so God's providing testimony by the Spirit to the identity of Jesus. Why is this vital? Why is this important? I'm going to give you just a few examples of why this is vital to these people. That they hold high the ministry of the Spirit, which is the identity of Jesus. Number one, it's important to understand that God Himself paid the price for sin, not some unwilling participant. If the divine Christ just sort of dropped on Jesus at His baptism, got Him on the cross and exited out, does that smell good to you? That stinks. He's kind of got this unwilling participant that just sort of like, hey, how'd I get up here? Bummer. No. The Bible affirms for us this glorious reality that the second person of the Trinity, the eternal God-man, Jesus Christ, Himself paid for my sin. Meaning, He loves me. I can't sing, oh how He loves you and me. Oh how He loves you and me. He gave His life, what more can He give? Oh how He loves you and me. If He didn't die willingly for my sin. There is no love. It's just sort of a, huh? I guess you get benefit, but bummer for me. No. The God-man went and died for rebels. Cost of His life and His perfection to do the great exchange where all those who repent and believe get His perfection and He takes our guilt. You're talking about the ultimate unfairness. Never charge God again with being unfair. Like when things don't go right for you. Look at him and say, it was unfair that you took my guilt. But that's love. It's love. This is one. Another one is God himself knows what it's like to suffer unjustly. The problem of evil for the Christian is not a difficult problem. We're going to do this in our worldview class in a few weeks. We'll talk about the problem of evil, those of you who are taking it. It's not a complicated problem. What makes it complicated is that we want to come with our accusations and throw them on God as though they carry weight. You counteract that by going over to the cross and looking up on it. 
Because God Himself knows what it's like to suffer unjustly. Because the God-man went to the cross, my place and yours. That's unjust. But the holiness of God demanded a sacrifice, and so God in His rich mercy took it upon Himself to suffer unjustly. So therefore, the God-man, the identity of Jesus is central to us dealing with the problem of evil and pain in our world. Because here's the deal. Do you think God's going to leave justice undone? Nope. Read the end of the story. Justice is going to be meted out well. Really, really well. Really well. Finally, God Himself is the solution for the rebellion, not us. If man alone can provide the solution for the rebellion, then guess who we don't need? God. But God Himself is the solution to the rebellion because God Himself takes on flesh, dies in our place for our sin, and He Himself is the solution for the rebellion so that intimately, ultimately, we need Jesus. We are not enough. Man is not his own salvation. So why does God provide the ministry of the Spirit to the identity of Jesus? For all those reasons and many more, and we don't have time to go over them all. You want to know more? Here you go. Live life with the lens of the gospel viewing everything. Bring all thought into the obedience of the eternal Son of God. It's infinite. We'll spend eternity doing that and never get to the end of it. Let that one blow your mind for a little bit. Verse 10 through 11. Believers in Jesus have the Father's testimony of eternal life in us. Listen to verse 10 and 11. And by the way, John is talking to a fellowship of believers. This is him speaking about the joy they possess in fellowship. Believers in Jesus have Father's testimony of eternal life in them. Verse 10 and 11. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. What's the testimony? Spirit testifying to water and blood. Ministry, death of Jesus. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe has made him a liar... Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God has given to us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Believers in Jesus have father's testimony of eternal life in them. What is that testimony? Holy Spirit. Listen, man, this is great. You don't have to grunt hard. You don't have to sit a certain way. You don't have to chant or do enough good to get the precious gift of God called Holy Spirit. If you have believed the gospel, there's been a great exchange take place, and God has taken your guilt, given you His perfection, and placed His Spirit. That's the promise of the new covenant in Ezekiel 36. That He will take out a heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh, put His Spirit in you, and cause you to walk in His way. If you've believed in Jesus, repented of your sin, you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you, which is the testimony to the ministry of Jesus. Why is this important? Because He is the power that produces a gospel witness that makes a difference when it lands on unregenerate hearts. 
believers in Jesus have the Father's testimony. Remember, these people who said they are more spiritual than these other poor fools have gone out and left them. And they're like, God, are we less than? Do we have, what's, what's our problem? And John says, you've got the Father's testimony dwelling in you. Going back to chapter 2, he says, you have been anointed with the Holy One. You have knowledge. You believed in Jesus. The Father's testimony of eternal life in Christ dwells in you, Holy Spirit, and He is the enabler of ministry. Verse 10 and 11. Those who do not believe have no life. Listen to verse 10. I'm sorry, verse 10 and 12. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he's not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. Verse 12. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Those who do not believe have no life. Listen, if you're going to do anything with Jesus in fellowship, there has to be a reminder in the fellowship and for those outside of the fellowship that a failure to have Jesus is to not possess life and then ultimately to make God out to be a liar. That's really bad news. Hey, listen, when you walk away from the fellowship, this, this is why it is essential. And, and I have trouble in my little world of convincing people that the church really does matter. The church has failed miserably in our culture. And it's not because Jesus has failed. It's because we have relied on methodologies above the gospel. We have relied upon strategies more than we've relied upon the gospel. We have been happy to not preach the Bible in order to attract people with our weak efforts at trying to address cultural issues with Christian cliches and concerts. And the church has failed at making disciples in our own context. That does not mean that the church is irrelevant because she is the bride of Jesus and He is cleaning her up and He will complete her. And He will get done through her the Great Commission. To walk away from the fellowship is to deny the center of the fellowship, which is Jesus. And thus, John uses some strong language here when he says, has made him a liar and has not believed. It's a perfect tense verb, meaning a past action completed, results fixed, and the results can carry on indefinitely into the future. In other words, they have completely, utterly, totally made God out to be a liar because God has witnessed that Jesus is it and they're saying He's not. Therefore, they're accusing God of lying, which puts them in an unenviable position. That of one who is going to be crushed because, what does the Scripture tell us? It is impossible for God to lie. What do the Scriptures tell us? Jesus is God's Son who has come to counteract the rebellion. Those who don't believe in Jesus have no life. Listen, when we deny, when we walk away from the body, we deny the Son. We deny the Son, we call God a liar. It's not a place 
I want to be. Those who do not believe are in a desperate state. And listen, I'm convinced that, that the church in the West is full of unbelievers. When I say church, I'm putting quotes inside of that. I don't mean the universal church in the church as God sees it. Okay? The church as God sees it is those blood-bought, spirit-filled saints who repented and believed. That's the church as God sees it. The church as we see it, Jesus told a parable about that, didn't He? The wheat and the weeds. At a moment in time, the servant said, Wow, look, Lord, the field is full of weeds. You want us to go get them? He said, no, 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 no. No, leave them. You may get some wheat with those weeds. Leave them at the end of the age. I will separate the wheat from the weeds. I'm convinced the church in North America is full of those who speak the right language, but internally there's been no transformation. There's no belief in Jesus. There's no outworking of the transforming power of the gospel, but they're they're present. They're present. I want to say to you, make sure that Jesus is the very middle and that the body of Christ is your vehicle. It's Jesus' vehicle. It's Jesus' vehicle. He died for His church and He will perfect His church. Make sure, make sure we are working through that vehicle. Because here's the deal. What happens when unbelievers get saved? What do we do? What are we supposed to do with them? Just float? Where do you take them? To the? Say it. The church. Listen. There are great works that are being done, but we've got to make sure we point people to the church. And you know what? There aren't a lot of good ones. Let me just be real honest. There aren't a lot of good ones. There are some. There's some, which is why we need to plant more. People always say, does Rome need more churches? I'm like, yeah. Yes, we do. Even Listen, if every Floyd County and believed the gospel and came to church, there's not enough church. Every church that's currently present in Floyd County would be a mega church. Are there enough churches? No. There's a church on every corner. No, there's not. But boy, it sure would be cool if there were. It would be awesome if there were. D- don't buy that kind of language, okay? You hear people, there's a church on every corner. We need more churches. What do we need? I don't know. We need more churches. We need more gospel preaching, gospel believing, disciple making churches. So if God so moves your heart, we'll figure that out. Interesting thing happened this week. I read an article and I tweeted out a link to it. The three of you that follow me on Twitter probably saw it. Just kidding. There's more than that. Um, the Pope, Pope Francis, we had a lot of hope for this cat, man. He was doing some cool stuff. This isn't a Catholic debate, so don't go there, okay? I'm just. There's an article written on the BBC that uh, the Pope declared that man does not have to believe in God to go to heaven. Did you read that article? Anybody read that link that I tweeted out? All right, one of you. Very good, very good. All right, oh, thank you. There's a couple back there. Good. At Mitch Jolly, if you want to go open a Twitter account, I do tweet out some stuff periodically. Great, some articles you might want to go read. The Pope declared that man doesn't have to believe in God to go to heaven, that his conscience becomes his judge at that point. As long as he obeys his conscience, God counts that regardless of how they go, and then everybody gets in. The unfortunate thing is the rest of the world views him as the head of Christianity. 
And therefore they put us in that category. He doesn't believe in the Son. He has denied the witness of God, the ministry of the Spirit, to point to Jesus. You do the math. That's our world, y'all. The what appears to be head of you told the world that they do not have to believe in just God in general to go to heaven. And so when other non-Christians ask you, you better be ready. Well, A, let's define who God is. B, what does the Bible say? C, yes, you've got to believe in Jesus. No, you don't get to go to heaven. Well, you're an intolerant bigot. Well, maybe so. Not really. Those who don't believe have no life. There's no life. If you don't believe in the Son, there's no life. There's no life. Listen, man, if we begin to view our world like that, we start to recognize there's walking dead people all around us. There's no life. They're dead. Their eyes are blinded. They can't see the decisions they make, where they go, what they do. They're blinded. They cannot see. And we carry the light, y'all. Jesus is the center. Finally, verse 11 and 12, and then back to chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, believers in Jesus have fellowship because we have life. We'll go all the way back to the beginning of 1 John. He says, beginning in verse 3, That which we've seen and heard, referencing Jesus, we proclaim also to you. Why? Comma. So that. Purpose clause. Here's the reason we're proclaiming this to you. So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Believers in Jesus have fellowship because we have life. Fellowship's a reality that exists apart from any strategy we have. And how do you have it? Believe in Jesus. You have Jesus, you have life. Fellowship is a reality. We don't have to create it. We live in it and we realize it. Conclusion. I'll give you some points here quickly to apply. Hold Jesus as the core of your fellowship. Hold Jesus as the core of your fellowship. Jesus is what holds fellowship together. It's our common bond. Ultimately, as much as I like affinity type things, like you hang out with guys that like the same things I like, you know what I notice? Ultimately, our conversation always comes back to one thing. Jesus. And there's sometimes, I'm just, can I be honest? Like I think sometimes people view the talking guy as probably spiritual more so, not fleshly. And can I just say to you, like I don't think about Jesus all the time. I don't sit in my office downstairs and chant Bible verses like with candles and stuff. And you know, and um, I, I just don't. Um, there are a lot of things sometimes I'd rather do than think about Jesus. Just being honest. Hunting season's coming up, and I ain't gonna lie to you. I'm I'm pretty taken with. Hunt season. It's coming up. Bow season opened yesterday. And I don't bow hunt because I miss too frequently. So, and so, but with rifles, I don't miss. So I'm pretty excited. And so, football season's upon us. And I mean, that's holy, right? I mean, seriously, there's things like like on Sunday afternoons. I'm not thinking about Jesus. I'm not gonna lie to you. I'm thinking about the Falcons. And if they're not playing well, like I'm miserable. It takes me like to Wednesday to get over it. <laughs> but you know what? I always notice, even for unregenerate people like me. 
when I'm around brothers and sisters, the conversation ends up coming back to Jesus. Why? She can't help it. You can't help it. Like I even, stupid as this is, I still like pray for the Falcons. Like I, hoping that God will hear my prayer. You know? And, and like even with buddies or football, I'm like, man, do you still pray for your teams? Yeah, isn't that weird? I know, we're like 41. We need to grow up. It's like, no. Even, even in the things that you like to do together, those people, you end up coming back to Jesus. Well, why? Because He's the center of fellowship. When we have the Spirit in us, because we believe the Gospel, when Christians get together, there's this thing that happens. And Jesus is kind of the middle of it. And I'm just saying, don't suppress it. It's okay. Enjoy it. It might be the source of revival in the South. Hold Jesus as the center. Enjoy Jesus as the center. Let things come back to Jesus. Bring things in obedience to Jesus. You know, it's a good idea to get together and talk about world issues. Get a newspaper or get your laptop or your tablet. Go to your favorite news website and start looking at world issues through the lens of Jesus. It's a good exercise. You think Jesus rules this world? He does. The Bible affirms that He's in control now. Matter of fact, the Bible tells us in Proverbs that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord and the Lord directs it wherever He will. So you think... Assad in Syria is kind of operating on his own right now? Not if the Bible's accurate. How cool would it be if Christians started making political decisions based on Jesus and not a party? Just saying. You know? We have the gospel, we have the spirit and life. Let's enjoy those as the center of our fellowship. Make disciples, helping each other grow in the faith. Listen, making disciples isn't just about new Christians like non-Christians becoming Christians, it's about also helping each other persevere in the faith. Because let me just say this, you know, it's not you can't turn around from Jesus. Hebrews 6 is clear. You throw Jesus under the bus, there's no coming back from that. And you know, some of us wrestle through some of those things. Sometimes life throws you curveballs. People don't do nice things to you. And life is hard. And there are moments where I need somebody to remind me, Jesus really does love me. As simple as that sounds, there are days I don't believe that. And if somebody don't remind me, I'm not going to pick up my Bible and read it because I don't want to. Anybody in here? Thank you. One or two of you. Some of the rest of you are already in heaven. Apparently, I, I don't... It's hard sometimes. And we need each other to say those things to one another. So you know what? My perseverance sometimes, to some degree, is a gift from the Lord through your mouth. And so, discipling, making disciples of each other, loving on each other, helping each other grow in the faith, and then obviously discipling non-Christians into the faith. I'm not interested in having... Just go do it. Just go do it. I don't care how you do it. Acts 8. Just go read Acts 8 and have a ball. The church got persecuted and what did they do? They sit down at a strategy meeting? No. They went and scattered and wherever they landed, they preached the gospel. All of them. Not the apostles. The apostles stayed in Jerusalem when the church was scattered after the stoning of Stephen. They all went preaching the gospel. Just go do it. Just go do it. I don't care how you do it. You don't stand on the street corner. I'm, I'm to the point, I don't care anymore. You know what? I, so, okay. As long as you're preaching the gospel, I don't care. Just go do something. Somebody needs to hear, right?
Release the gospel. Release the gospel. Stop holding the gospel in, taking it captive to inferior things. Gospel witness and fellowship. Telling, handing out Bibles. We got two boxes of leather, small ESV Bibles. Go get one, put your name, phone number, something in there. Go hand it out to somebody, ask them if they have any questions. Best tract on the face of the planet is a Bible. Invite people to your connect groups. Invite people to church. Sow the gospel broadly. And finally, enjoy your fellowship. Enjoy your time together with Jesus as the center. God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in Him. And when we enjoy one another in the gospel, God gets great glory. And, uh, and we get great joy. And those are two really nice things. God glorified us having a ball. And there's a witness in that to the gospel. Be in fellowship. Fight for fellowship. Die for fellowship. Let's pray. Father, today um, we want to say I declare to you that um, I absolutely um, am smitten with the gospel. Thank you, Father, that the gospel is, is um, salvation for me and for all who will hear and believe. It is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. So, Father, I pray that, that you would continue your sanctifying work in, in me and in us together. Holy Spirit, would you counsel us out of sin and into righteousness, counsel us out of our emotional highs and lows into the rock-steady truth of your word. Holy Spirit, point us to the Son that we may see the Father. Holy Spirit, empower our worship. Empower our ability to sing to you because you greatly delight in your people singing to you. So help us to do that well. Holy Spirit, help us to cast off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and together to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Help us to do that together in whatever form that takes. Build the fellowship of your people. Teach us to submit to that, to walk in that in great joy. And let our joy be a sweet aroma of praise to you and witness to the gospel. And then give us mouths to say it. Be pleased as we worship you, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name.